0: The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and uh, I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King, and it's great to be with you. Uh, If you're a guest or visitor, welcome. We're glad that you're here, and uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet, uh, for me to introduce myself formally, uh, I'd love to meet you after the service, or, or you can come back this afternoon at 4 o'clock. We're having our, our picnic, our celebration of the anniversary of our church. You're welcome to come back. If you didn't sign up, don't worry, come back. Uh, there's going to be plenty of f- food, I promise. Uh, we would love for you to join us. Um, but this morning, uh, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Joshua so if you have a bible i'd encourage you to turn to joshua chapter 5. if you don't have a bible there are bibles in the chairs in front of you and um, as we do every week we'll be projecting the passage on the screen so you can follow along there but you remember if you're with us last week that god's people have moved into the promised land Uh, they've just moved onto the other side of the jordan river right god miraculously dried up the jordan and allowed the people to walk across and so now they've entered into the land They're starting to take, they're starting to see the fulfillment of God's promise. A promise that God had made hundreds of years prior to Abraham. This promise that they hoped for, that they longed for, that they looked forward to. It is now coming to fruition and they're starting to enter into the land. And so you would think that as they enter into the land, as this promise is coming to fulfillment, that they would immediately move against the city of Jericho that they move against other cities, that they would start to build homes for themselves, that they would plant gardens, that they would build cities, that they would uh, build their families, and that they would live together. That's what you would think they would do, right? They've moved into the land. This is how you're supposed to live in the land. But that's actually not what happens. You see, instead of engaging in these normal sorts of living within the land, they're actually put on pause. And they instead are going to engage in ceremony. There's two ceremonies that they engage in. And in doing this in chapter 5, these ceremonies are informing them, are instructing them and teaching them who they are. So let's read Joshua 5. We're going to read only the first 12 verses. This is God's word. As soon, all, soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath-heroth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord." The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua was circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we ask that as we come to it now, that you would teach us what it means to be your people, that we would learn from your word, that you would instruct us and guide us, that you would show us through the work of your spirit how it is that we are to live, that we would fix our eyes on you, and that your grace would abound to us even now as we come to your word. So be, be with us and help us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the great uh, existential questions that we can consider and ask is the question, Who am I? Who are you? Right. That, that is one of the questions that is asked. Who am I? What does it mean for me to be me? this question and questions similar to it have been asked and answered countless times and in countless ways, right? Every single place and people, every single time in history has wrestled with this question, who am I? Who are you? What does it mean for me to be me? Now, now, maybe this morning you didn't wake up and you didn't roll over in bed and start wondering, you know, all the different existential questions that you could be wondering, right, over your bowl of cereal as you're driving in. You maybe weren't wondering, who am I? I mean, really, who am I? Maybe you weren't wondering that. But the truth is, is that anytime we have a conversation about existence, anytime we talk about purpose, anytime we think about meaning or identity, this is what we're asking, what does it mean to be human, what does it mean to be me, who am I? So how would you answer that question? There are lots of ways, lots of directions we could go. We could appeal to our family, right, our lineage. Well, who am I? I'm a Penny Legion, or I'm a Perry, or a Moore, or a Wilson, or whoever, right? This is who I am. I'm determined by who I am, by who family I'm in. Or maybe you turn to what many in our culture actually turns to now. You could say that I am who I am based on my sexuality, my race, my ethnicity. This is how I identify who I am. Or perhaps it's your profession. Right? I'm an engineer, a doctor, a stay-at-home parent, a teacher. That's how Erin Callen, who was the CFO for Lehman Brothers, who at one point was named the most powerful woman on Wall Street, that's how she determined who she was. For she said, I don't know how to value who I was versus what I did. What I did was who I was. Maybe some of you can resonate with that. That what you do, what you produce, how you work, that's who you are. Or maybe just the question itself, you you don't like this question. And you don't want to even answer it, right? Because to be confronted by who you are, like, you don't want to see that. And so you, you hear the words of Taylor Swift when she says, I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. And you think, amen. I would rather have my eyes burn from staring at the sun than be confronted by what I see in the mirror. Maybe you feel that. Whether you ignore this question and pass it aside, or you turn to your career, your talents, your education, or your lineage, we are all in some way and at some point going to answer that question, who am I? But you know, there's actually a more important question. There's a more important question, and answering the more important question, this question gets answered in and of itself. The more important question isn't who am I, it's whose am I? And in answering whose am I, we will know who we are. And the answer to that question, whose am I, is given to us in this passage. Because as the people enter into the land... Before they become conquerors, before they become builders or farmers, before their identity is shaped by what they do or their efforts or works, God stops them. He puts them on pause and he teaches them whose they are. And we see whose there are by the sign that they are given. The sign points to whose they are. It's the sign of circumcision. We see it in verses 2 through 8. This word circumcision, it's repeated by by my count at least eight times. And so clearly in chapter five, circumcision is very important. But why? Why is this important for God's people to engage in this ceremony just as they are going into the land? Well, do you remember their history? Remember that promise that was made hundreds of years ago to Abraham. Right? A promise made to him up and go to a land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. I'm I'm going to give to you uh, children and a nation is going to be built. And I'm going to give you land and a blessing. And you're going to live in this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But that promise didn't come to fruition right away. Because after Abraham, we have the patriarchs. And then Israel is put into slavery, and then they're freed, they're rescued, and then they wander in the wilderness hundreds of years, generation after generation, until they finally come to the land. And as they come to the land, they come uncircumcised. That's what we see in verse 5. Right? That those who had been born in the wilderness, right? So there's two generations Joshua is showing us there's the Exodus generation and then the wilderness generation. The wilderness generation, those born in the wilderness, had not been circumcised. That's what we see in verse five. The men who lived in Egypt, the Exodus generation, they had been, but they're all dead. Now, maybe this is where you're wondering, but but Penny, in verse 2, it says be circumcised a second time. So what's going on here? Like, is there a contradiction between verse 2 and verse 5? Well, there are ways that we can try and think about this. So some people have argued that what is going on here is that they were circumcised, but they were circumcised with an Egyptian circumcision, which was different than an Israelite circumcision. Okay. I don't think that's right because we're told that they need to be circumcised for the first time later. What I think is going on is that the first circumcision, it's it's referencing the whole people of Israel. All of the men. All of the men had once been circumcised, but now all the men need to be circumcised again, right? The ones who hadn't been. So this is the second circumcision. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's what I think is going on. I don't think it's a contradiction. I think what's happening is that the men who were born in the wilderness, who are entering into the land, haven't been circumcised. And so they need to be. They need to be because they don't have the covenantal sign. And that's what circumcision was. It's the sign of God's covenant with his people. You see, back in Genesis, when God made that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and then Genesis 15, he follows it up in Genesis 17 with a promise, with a sign to confirm his promise. God says to him in Genesis 17, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So this sign of circumcision that was first given to Abraham, but then was supposed to be given to all the men who came after him, This sign told those who bore the sign that God's promise was sure. His promise that he made to Abraham, it was still in effect. That he was going to bring it about. And it told those who bore this sign that they belonged to God. That they were his. You know, sometimes when we do a baptism here, um, sometimes I'll I'll invoke the wedding ring illustration, right? Right? Y'all who have been around for a little while have heard me do this, right? A wedding ring is a sign. It's a symbol, right? Every time I look at it, every time I touch it, even when I pull it up and I won't take it off because I'll probably drop it. Um, Cat would not be happy. Um, But even the little indentation on my finger, right? It's a sign. It's a sign that I belong to someone else. It's a sign that I am not my own that I belong to Kat, and every time I touch it, every time I look at it, every time I play with it or drop it, I'm reminded that I belong to her. But it's not just a sign for me, it's a sign for others as well. It's a sign, it points others to the fact that I am not my own, that I belong to another, that I have a wife and my wife has a husband. Right? It's a sign that shows that I'm not my own, and that's what circumcision is. It's declaring to Israel and to the people of the land that Israel is not their own, that they belong to the Lord, and so do we. You see, this isn't just a promise for Israel, it's a promise for us. See, God has given us a sign, right? We actually saw it already this morning. It's a sign of baptism because we're told in the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 2, that, that, we have, that baptism is the, the sign of the new covenant. It's the sign of the people of God in the New Testament era. It has replaced the sign of circumcision. And in being baptized, as the water flows over our heads, this sign is declaring to us and to others that we are not our own, that we belong to the Lord, that we, by his grace, are part of his people, that the promises of God are for us and for our children, that because of the grace of God, because of Christ, we belong to God. And because we belong to him, God says that we are his people, that we are beloved. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. He's rolled away, so he's invoking the imagery of circumcision, right? I'll I'll let you guys put put the dots together on that one, that rolling away. But, But the question should come to our minds, like, how is circumcision a removing the reproach of Egypt? Well, think about who Israel was in Egypt. They were slaves. They were weak. They were only valuable because they did the Egyptians' bidding. Even as they moved into the wilderness, as they were freed, right? They wandered, they were nomadic, they were homeless. And so surely they came under and felt the scorn of Egypt. But when God gave them the sign, gave them this sign, he was saying, regardless of what Israel thought of you, you are my treasured possession. You may have felt like you were orphans and fatherless, but I'm your heavenly father. He's saying you may have been undervalued, you may have been, been ignored and despised, even murdered and killed, but, but you are my beloved people. This is what he's saying to them when he gives them this sign. Regardless of what Egypt thought of you, I love you, my treasured possession. He is rolling away the reproach of Egypt. And that's what he says to us. You see, whatever it was that Egypt said about Israel, or whatever it is that the world may say about the church, or whatever we may think about us, God says we are his. We are a treasured possession, a holy nation, a people for God's own purposes. We are His, and because we are His, because we belong to Him, because He has given us this sign, this sign calls us to obedience. You see, the contrast between the generation that came out of Egypt and the generation entering the land isn't just a contrast between those with the sign and those without. Did you see it in verse 6? For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished. Why did they perish? Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. So you see what's happening? They were given the sign, but they didn't respond to the sign with obedience. They were part of God's people, but they didn't live like they were God's people. The Old Testament theologian Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says, you can have all the marks of the people of God, but lack the response of the people of God. You may hold membership among God's flock, but have no relationship with the shepherd. You may live in the king's country, but reject his sovereignty. You see, the sign marks us as belonging to God, and it calls us to live as though we belong to God. To not presume upon the sign, to not presume upon God's grace, but instead to respond in obedience. And this would have been important for Israel as they were going into the land. Because think about, as they're going into the land, they would have been exposed to new gods, to pagan religions. They would have been exposed to the enticements of the nations. And so they need reminding, they need to be retold, you don't belong to Baal. You're not made for the temptations of the land. No, you belong to the Lord. You, you have been given over to the Lord, and so you are to give yourself to obedience to the Lord. And we, too, need reminding that, right? I mean, because we, too, are exposed to all sorts of gods in our day, not Baals, but the gods of our age, right? Materialism, sexual immorality, right? The gods of politics, and believe me, that, that is a god wanting your heart. Right? There are all sorts of things that seek to entice us, to seek to woo us, to, to, to take hold of our hearts. And so we need reminding, don't we? That we belong to the Lord, not to those things. That we belong to the Lord, and because we belong to the Lord, we are to give ourselves over to the Lord's ways, to the Lord's will. This is what god is calling us to do that we obey because we belong to god not so that we would but because he has made us his own he says live like you are mine okay so this is the sign that we are given the sign of whose we are but the passage doesn't just talk about whose we are the passage also celebrates whose we are now listen um the second point is way shorter than the first so um, if you're looking at your clock breathe easy okay (laughs) it's a little shorter but we see this right away right after they've been given the sign after they've been circumcised they receive this sign they then eat the covenantal meal they eat the passover verse 10 while the people of israel were encamped at gilgal they kept the passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of jericho okay so you remember the passover right way back in egypt Way back in Egypt, God was bringing plagues upon Egypt so that he was seeking to motivate, to entice Pharaoh, to let his people go. And in this final plague, the plague of judgment that's going to come upon the the firstborn in Egypt, God says to his people, before my judgment comes, slaughter a lamb, take the blood painted on the doorposts. And when judgment comes, those homes with the blood on the doorposts, he will pass over judgment will pass by. And that's what happened. The people of God were delivered from his judgment. And so every year they would eat this meal and they would celebrate God's passing over of his judgment. They would celebrate God's deliverance. They would celebrate their rescue, God's care, his love for them. And as they enter the land, they're going to celebrate again. How God had freed them from Egypt, and how now he was giving them this land. It's a reminder to them that everything that they have, that the grace that they have, the deliverance they have, that even the land that they are entering, it is by God's grace. That is what they are celebrating. But what's interesting is what comes after this celebration. Did you see it in verses 11 and 12? After the day of Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year now uh, this isn't just a historical marker for us it's not just giving a little bit of detail in fact I I think that it's probably very hard for us to comprehend how beautiful and how powerful this occasion really was You see, in the wilderness, God provided manna, right? Bread from heaven. He miraculously fed them and and sustained them through the wilderness because they had no food. So every day they had manna. Manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner, right? This is all that they ate. And so I can imagine that over a few days, weeks, months, years, 40 years of eating manna, they probably got tired of manna, right? It's not hard to imagine because that's actually exactly what happened, (laughs) They complained, and they grumbled right, they grumbled against Moses, and they grumbled about manna, right they 're like the hobbits with with the the elvish bread, right like, uh, you know it, it tasted good at first, but boy i 'm tired of manna, and so you can imagine that as they approach the land that they start to think they start to remember like pomegranates and grapes and and fruit and grain, and they're being enticed their appetites right they can 't wait to sink their teeth into that beautiful produce of the land well now that they're in the land the manna ceases and why not because God's no longer providing for them but because, but because God is providing for them through the land God's promise is coming to fruition a land flowing with milk and honey it's not just a, a thing out there in the future it is for you today it's for you now You don't need my manna anymore. I don't need to provide for you miraculously. I'll provide for you just simply through the land. Pomegranates and grapes, grain and fruit. Their meals had once been sparse, but now, now they are going to feast. This reminds me of that first Sunday after the lockdown. You all remember the lockdown? (laughs) We maybe don't want to remember the lockdown, But that first Sunday when we gathered in this room and we met again, and there were fewer of us here that Sunday morning, but on that day we sang and we prayed and we sat under God's word and we came to the table. See, for months we had gone without the Lord's Supper, but on that day, on that day we ate and we drank and we gave thanks and we celebrated God's provision. It was a day to feast to celebrate, but the celebration, the feast, it didn't end on that Sunday, but instead it continues. A celebration of whose we are, because every single week as we gather and as we pray and as we sing and sit under God's word and we come to this meal, we celebrate again. We celebrate that through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, our Passover lamb, The one who shed his blood so that our sins would be forgiven. We celebrate that we, because of him, belong to the Lord. That we are God's. That is what we celebrate. Whose are we? Well, by God's grace, we are his. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have made us your own. And so we do pray that we would fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our salvation, who has gone to the cross, who has scorned its shame and has redeemed us by his very blood. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to cling to your grace, to hold fast to it, to remember that we are yours, that we are your people and you are our God, and that we would live in light of that, and that we would celebrate this day and all of our days that you have made us your own. And we pray all this in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen.